This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Thank you for downloading a K&L Gates podcast. This audio recording is for informational purposes and does not contain or convey legal advice, nor does it create any attorney-client relationship. The information herein should not be relied upon in regard to any particular facts or circumstances without first consulting a lawyer. Hello, my name is Eric Prager. I'm a partner in the New York office of K&L Gates. I practice in the firm's intellectual property group. Today I'll be discussing participation in standard-setting organizations, or SSOs. My goal is to introduce the role of these organizations and to suggest some subjects that companies might consider in deciding whether to participate in SSOs. I hope to answer three questions. What are technical standards? What are standard-setting organizations? And why should this subject matter to your company or your clients? We all use agreed technical standards every day without thinking about them. DVDs, USB and firewire connectors, 802.11 wireless networking, and even 110 or 220 volt current. In modern commerce, and especially in electronics, technical standards are frequently the result of investigation and agreement among engineers working in SSOs. There are a variety of SSOs and committees within them that are focused on addressing particular technical hurdles and market needs. The fact that a particular configuration is a standard does not mean that it's the best way to do something. Standardization is about predictability, not perfection. Standards may arise de facto as a result of commercial success in the marketplace, or they may be promulgated de jure by a standard setting body. The QWERTY keyboard layout, for example, the familiar keyboard that all of us use, is a well-known de facto standard that was intended not to be the best way to do something. The original design of the keyboard was created by the typewriter company in the 1870s as a way to slow down typists so that typewriter keys wouldn't jam as frequently. The names of some SSOs are probably familiar to you, like the International Organization for Standardization, uh, frequently called ISO. Here in the United States, the American National Standards Institute, or ANSI, is a familiar name to many. And to pick an industry-specific group, the Institute for Electrical and Electronics Engineers, or IEEE, is very active in developing standards in the electronics and telecom space. You may have heard of the legal difficulties that uh, computer chip manufacturer Rambus has faced over the last several years related to its participation in the Joint Electron Device Engineering Council, JEDIC, standard setting body. These have involved uh, an FTC enforcement action, private antitrust claims, and obstacles to Rambus' own patent enforcement suits. Rambus is a publicly traded company and makes disclosures about uh, its legal expenses and has indicated that for the coming quarter, it expects to spend between 15 and $17 million on litigation expenses. It's been running near $10 million a quarter for some time now. This presentation isn't about any particular company or dispute. It's about how companies generally might go about deciding whether to participate in standard setting initiatives but I hope to impress the point that these can be very important decisions for companies. 
Technical standards developed in SSOs often rely on inventions that are protected by patents, and many of the patents are owned by the companies that participate in creating the standards. There's nothing improper about this. The companies that have done groundbreaking research or created clever solutions to technical problems and received patents for that work have an interest in getting their ideas to market and often need the help of other companies to do that. For example, the company that developed a laser to read data on an optical disk might not have the right engineers to build a tiny motor to spin the disk, and it could be in all of our interests to get companies like those together. Naturally, the companies that own patents on technologies that get included in standards also stand to benefit. Even a fraction of a penny on the millions of DVDs that are manufactured each year is a nice revenue stream. And if you also happen to manufacture disks, there's another opportunity to profit there. Participation in the standard setting process can offer other benefits as well. It gives a company the opportunity to gather data while a standard is getting created, and this may speed time to market once a standard is adopted. It may give insight into competitors' thinking and directions that the market may move in the future. It may enable a company to help shape a standard, possibly even steering the standard to incorporate the company's own technology rather than an alternative. All of this can help ensure licensing revenue and the useful development of a company's patent portfolio. So, should every company that has a few engineers and a patent participate in an SSO? In my opinion, the answer is a resounding no, despite what your engineers may tell you. And I call out the engineers on this because, at least in my experience, it's frequently the engineers who are eager to participate in standard-setting initiatives and uh, less frequently uh, the executives who oversee them who play a role in making the decision for the company. And while participation can have great benefits for a company, it also carries costs and risks that I, I hope this presentation will lead you to consider. The most serious cost to participation in an SSO is the loss of a degree of control over your intellectual property. SSOs generally require participants to agree, as a condition of participating in creating the standard, to make available any patent they own for free or on reasonable and non-discriminatory licensing terms, and that's often abbreviated RAND licensing terms, to anyone who wants to use the resulting standard. This is a stark contrast to the usual rule in patent law that a patent owner can license or refuse to license anyone it wants and charge any rate that the market will bear. There's little law establishing what licensing rates are reasonable in the context of standard setting, and this can create uncertainty. What is a reasonable licensing rate in relation to a standard? Is it the cost to design around the patent? And what if no design around is possible? Non-discriminatory licensing is a bit better understood. It means that a license will be granted on comparable terms to anyone who wants a license to practice the standard. While generating licensing revenue sounds attractive, many companies rely on the power to deny a license to keep their competitors at bay. Companies entering or creating new markets may depend for success on the market's tacit acceptance or acquiescence to their business plan, and an agreement to license into any business plan may lead to a business failure. Put another way, the patent may be the only leverage that the company has to ensure its success. 
let's run through an example that, that shows how this might be so. And this is entirely fabricated, but uh, I believe shows the point. Imagine a, a Japanese mobile phone company that owns a broad United States patent that covers all mobile telephone communications. And that phone company offers telephone service in the United States through a subsidiary using the GSM communication protocol. That's the telecommunications protocol for mobile phones that's used throughout most of the world, but predominantly not in the United States. We'll imagine this negotiation is going on, say, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. You might expect that this Japanese telephone company has built out a GSM network, perhaps at a cost of billions of dollars. Now imagine the company joins a standard-setting organization devoted to the standardization of mobile phone communications. The goal of the SSO is to facilitate interoperability among mobile systems, and the Japanese company hoped to steer the SSO to fall in line with the GSM protocol that's used in the rest of the world. The company agreed, when it joined the SSO, to license its patent to any mobile phone standard selected by the SSO, perhaps convinced that the internationally accepted protocol would carry the day. Now, if the SSO selected instead the CDMA protocol as the standard for mobile service in the U.S., the Japanese company would be compelled to license its patent to companies that want to use the CDMA protocol in the United States. This might give the Japanese company some licensing revenue, but its core business of providing mobile phone service could fail in the United States as the rest of the market gravitates to the CDMA standard. The better move might have been to avoid the SSO entirely and inform the market that licenses will only be available for GSM systems. The exclusionary power that the patent gives in that instance could shape the commercial landscape in a manner that would enable the Japanese company to flourish in the US and realize the benefit of its investment not only in developing the technology but in building out its GSM infrastructure. On the flip side of this, a, a different situation is presented for a company that owns a large portfolio of patents and wants to generate revenue primarily by licensing those patents. Many characterize IBM as operating in this way. IBM owns thousands of patents and is reported to generate more than a billion dollars a year in licensing revenue from licensing them. If that's your business model, a company might participate in a number of SSOs and readily grant licenses whenever its patented technology gets included in a standard. Still a different situation might be presented if a company owns patents that are unrelated to its core business. Their licensing is really nothing but a windfall. Participating in an SSO can present a number of other issues depending on context. Companies may do well to think about some of these scenarios as they navigate through their business relationships. For example, a target company in an M&A transaction that has been participating in standards work might have obligations to license its patent portfolio in connection with that standards work. And an acquiring company might think differently about the value of that target company if it knows that it will not have exclusive use of those IP assets, if the target has an obligation that will carry to the parent, to the, the acquirer, to license those patents out into a standard. Patents that are the subject of SSO-related promises can't be later licensed exclusively. 
there's always that carve-out for the SSO obligations. Company entering into a joint development agreement with another company might want to think about these issues. If one party to a joint development agreement has SSO licensing obligations, the other party may find the world filled with licensees where I thought the use of jointly developed property would be tightly regulated under the joint development agreement. And this is one of those places where that boilerplate representation and warranty that we all see that a company has no contractual obligations that conflict with the present agreement can really come back to bite a company. So the discussion thus far has focused on a company's decision whether to participate in an SSO. Once a company determines that its broader business objectives can be met by participating in an SSO, there are several issues to consider that arise in the context of participation itself. Technical committees within a standard-setting organization frequently begin with a technical problem to overcome and consider a variety of solutions to the problem. Wireless telephone service, to pick one example, might work at a variety of frequencies but there may be technical or other reasons to choose one over another. One of those other considerations is frequently cost. Many SSOs have a stated goal to use free technologies when they're available, or at least to use less costly solutions when they can. A technical committee considering different technologies naturally then might want to inquire of a technology owner what its licensing terms are before that technology is selected for a standard. So now you have a room full of patent owners with all the exclusionary power that patents grant talking about pricing. This, as you might expect, is the sort of thing that keeps antitrust lawyers awake at night. There are permissible ways to engage in these sort of ex-ante licensing discussions, as they're called, that is before a standard is set. But this is not an area that a typical engineer or even an executive should wander without some guidance. Layer on top of that, the fact that different countries have different antitrust or competition laws and sensibilities, and it should quickly become apparent that for standards that will be adopted worldwide, like DVDs and USB and probably most major standards, there are many I's to dot and T's to cross in order to avoid problems. Another important issue facing companies that have decided to participate in SSOs is an ongoing allocation of resources, both technical and legal. Technical committees may work their way through several drafts of an evolving standard, or may consider competing standards advanced by different companies or groups of companies within an SSO. As you might expect, different standards and even different drafts of the same standard may implicate different patents. Vigilance, both technical and legal, since many engineers are not well qualified to assess patent infringement, is required to know when your company's IP rights may be at issue and subject to a licensing obligation. I should add here as well that some SSOs extend these licensing obligations not only to participants' patents, but also to pending patent applications. And assessing what technology a pending patent application may in the future cover is no mean feat. What's more, a company's obligation to license its patents into a standard may be triggered by joining an SSO, or it may be triggered by remaining a member at a time when a particular draft is proposed, or it may be triggered by remaining a member at the time a final standard is approved. 
Obviously, this difference may matter quite a lot to a company, and it's usually governed by a written patent policy within each SSO. Every company needs to decide for itself which path or what combination of these paths will be most advantageous for it. This is not a decision, however, that typically can be made by a lab engineer acting alone, by a lawyer acting alone, or by an executive acting alone. It requires a deep understanding of the company's business model, its future plans, the company's technology and how it's relevant in the developing marketplace, and the strength and breadth of the company's patents and applications. Only by knowing all of these things is it possible to assess what a company stands to gain and what it stands to lose by participating in a standard-setting organization. Thank you for downloading a K&L Gates podcast. This audio recording is for informational purposes and does not contain or convey legal advice, nor does it create any attorney-client relationship. The information herein should not be relied upon in regard to any particular facts or circumstances without first consulting a lawyer. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.